Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce cost and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com strange. netsuite.com strange. netsuite.com strange. I'm Laura Norton, and this is One Strange Thing, the show where we search the nation's news archives for stories that can't quite be explained. Just a heads up on this episode, it's a little gorier than usual, so listener discretion is advised. Ah, strangers. The American education system has a number of quirks, but our indubitable favorite is this. We all spend time in our K-8 through years learning the local history of our region, but depending on where you lived, You've spent that time on very different topics. In the Northeast, you likely focus for far too long on the 13 colonies. And in the West, you heard an awful lot about gold rushes. And what better way to commemorate a golden anniversary, our 50th 5-0 episode, than a story about gold and what the idea of it does to people. One Strange Thing's intrepid producer grew up in California and remembers not one, but several field trips having to do with gold and then their hills, and then their rivers, and then their canyons. The rush of prospectors to Northern California and Sutter's Mill in 1849 built the West, for better or worse. And it did build in some ugly ways, surely. We're talking about land occupation and a frenzied, often deadly search for the chance to strike it rich after all. But for the pioneers creeping their way west, the promise of gold meant hope. As many children of the western states have since learned firsthand, at cheesily-themed sleepaway camps, the life of a gold rusher was not easy. If you were lucky, and that's lucky in the barest, most technical sense of the word, you'd settle in a mining town, where your chances of having a roof over your head were decent, and your chances at finding and keeping any gold were slim. Alternately, you'd rough it, literally, outside. And either way, the work of actually getting gold was excruciating. Hunched over a pie pan full of river silt, shaking away until you were soaked to the bone in river water, 
and maybe a shiny fleck turned out to be your wildest dream. Or you were toiling away in a mine, dark, dangerous, and cutthroat. In the fantastically named Superstition Mountains, a range just east of Phoenix, Arizona, there were lots of mines like that, but there's only one we're concerned with today, the Lost Dutchman. And it's an especially dangerous one, though not for the reasons you'd guess. See, it's there that, since the mid-1800s, rumors have swirled of a mother load. Per the Apache Junction Public Library, this enormous gold deposit had been discovered by Jacob Waltz, a prospector and a German immigrant, not a Dutch one at all, but Dutchmen just had that mystique, we suppose. As the library explained, Jacob Waltz had been prospecting for gold, and once he found it, he kept the location to himself and took it nearly to the grave. According to many tellings, including one reported in the Arizona public, he went so far as to kill anyone who stumbled across the mine, or who seemed like they might know about it. In October of 1891, his health began to fail, potentially due to the stress of the whole protecting an incredible gold mine with lethal force habit he might have developed. As he neared his end, Jacob did share some clues with his neighbor, Julia Thomas, and an associate and fellow German, Reinhard Petresch. As the Apache Junction Public Library's website explains, quote, Reinhardt learned a few meager clues during this period. Waltz mumbled out several clues during those final days. As the end became apparent for the old Dutchman, he called Julia and Reinhardt to his side and gave them the final clues to his rich gold mine. That would have been fine, but Julia and Reinhardt had been celebrating a bit too much and their minds were a little foggy. This they would later regret when they were wandering aimlessly in the mountains east of Phoenix, end quote. There are many, many versions of this story. Some end with Julia, Reinhardt, or someone else striking at Richard Jacob's mine and keeping its location a secret. Some end more tragically. Some we assume are tellings where Jacob's friends were not celebrating his impending death so enthusiastically, which feels a little messy if you ask us. Anyhow, hold on tight as we jump forward a few centuries because this brings us to one Jesse Joseph Capen. We can assume that Jesse Joseph Capen heard several iterations of this story. He was a bit of a lost Dutchman buff, or more specifically, somewhere between a buff and a fanatic. Per Fox News, Jesse, a bellhop, had spent much of his free time reading up on the lost Dutchman for several years. And it wasn't just a casual interest. Quote, Jesse had made finding the hidden treasure an obsession fueled by more than 100 books and maps on the legendary, and perhaps non-existent, mine. According to the Denver Post, in the winter of 2009, Jesse finally took the plunge and planned a trip to the suspicions. He prepared for a month-long camping and hiking excursion and left home without any incident. But that's where things took a very serious turn. Jesse never came back from his quest. Fox reported that hundreds of searchers took to the superstitions a little over a month after he left for his trip. Fairly quickly, they found Jesse's campsite 
with plenty of books on the lost Dutchman. Searches are difficult to carry out in the superstitions, per the Denver Post, in large part because of the difficult terrain. It wasn't until after Thanksgiving of 2012 that, per the Post, Jesse's backpack, GPS, and driver's license were found at the foot of a cliff. In gathering those, searchers spotted a boot higher up the cliff. There's some thought that Jesse met his end on the first day of his trip into the superstitions, before he could even search for the mine in earnest. Per his obituary, his remains were retrieved by helicopter in 2012, just off a ledge on Tortilla Mountain. Before his death, he'd managed to summit that mountain 4,892 feet up. According to the Denver Post, quote, hikers had found a note in a metal can atop the peak that said, Jesse Capon was here, December 4th, 2009. It's a tragic story to be sure. People do dangerous things in the name of fame and wealth and curiosity. That's a tale as old as human nature itself. But we'd understand if you thought that, surely, Jesse's was a tragic fluke. And there can't be that many people that go into the desert to treasure hunt, and let alone lose their lives in the process. Well, a few months after Jesse disappeared into the superstitions, Three more men set out to find the lost Dutchman. They, too, did not survive the trip. Per the Deseret News, Curtis Murworth, Malcolm Meeks, and Ardeen Charles disappeared in July of 2010. They planned a three-day trip into the superstitions to see if they couldn't strike it rich. But they left for that trip and never came back. Curtis Murworth's mother spoke with the Deseret News, and according to her, the trip had seemed ill-fated from the start. Quote, The three were not well prepared for the planned three-day trek, and two of them had medical conditions, she said. Temperatures that week soared into the triple digits. Curtis had to be rescued in the same area last year when he got lost and called for help on his cell phone. On this trip, she said, the trio left Utah with sleeping bags, some food, and six jugs of water. They planned to camp or sleep in the car, but did not take a cell phone. She said, I didn't want him to go. I had a premonition. God told me if he went, he's not coming back. I begged him not to go, but he went. Per KSL, the three men's skeletons were located the following January. Now, none of the articles we've cited concerning any of these four men confirmed how exactly they lost their lives. It's reasonable to assume that there wasn't much evidence left to work with, given the consistently scorching temperatures and brutal landscape of the superstitions, which, now that we mentioned them, are also decent explanations in themselves. But here's the thing. These men were four of many in a long, long line of people who've tried and failed to find the lost Dutchman mine and they're far from the only ones to lose their lives in the process. According to the Daily Mail, the fabled mine has earned itself a bit of a reputation. Quote, either it has guardian angels concealing the entrance, or it is cursed. And yes, it's a quote from the Daily Mail, but considering the havoc this legend has wrought, maybe it's a decent source just this once.
Looking for creepy stories? Then we might have a podcast for you. And now, presenting Rattled and Shook. Rattled and Shook is a weekly podcast that features new scary stories every episode, kind of like this. I would hear her say things to me inside my head. I couldn't get around him. I was trapped. The other guy started to get pretty agitated. He grabbed my grandfather's oxygen hose and he cut off his oxygen. Then I started thinking, well, you know, who would be hanging around in this nowhere forest, in this nowhere area? And that's when I started looking more closely. And that's when I noticed there were several shapes. And they were slowly working their way toward me as they were moving from tree to tree. New episodes of Rattled and Shook are out every Thursday. Listen for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. So, let's dive into this curse. The first mentions of the Lost Dutchman in local papers, at least as early as our archives could tell us, was in January of 1899, eight years after Jacob Waltz had passed away, leaving only hints as to the location of his mine, three adventurers went out into the superstitions and came back completely empty-handed. According to this article in the Arizona Republic, this group of three men by the names of Thomas, Cox, and McGill had been wandering the mountains for two weeks with no particular goal in mind. Quote, They had no intention of hunting for this mine, which drove its original possessor to death, and then got lost. They intended, of course, if the lost Dutchman intruded itself upon them, to take it in. Which, if you ask us, feels like a convenient excuse for really wanting to find a mythical gold mine, but not wanting to seem too desperate. In any case, the Republic reported that these three did find a promising area for copper mining, the location of which they did not write down and could not describe. As the Republic put it, quote, it was more a pleasure trip than any other. We assume the news cycle was slow in Arizona at that time. So, an irritating account if you're a person who likes any plot development at all. But not to worry, it gets better. Later that year, in May of 1899, the Arizona Republican reported that another two men had gone out to seek, quote, that mysterious treasure vault known as the Lost Dutchman Mine. One of these two men, Mr. Charles Rodig, had fallen from his wagon the previous day and hurt his wrist, a frustrating, premature end to the expedition. He'd apparently found the mine before and remembered an enormous gold deposit, but every time he tried to return, he'd been unable to retrace his steps. Per the Republican, that wasn't unusual. Quote, Hundreds of people have hunted for it, but it has curiously happened that they were overtaken by some unusual accident. Sometimes they were unaccountably lost. Mr. Rodig has made several expeditions, but he has always been overtaken by illness or injury. In April of 1909, the Arizona Republican took another failed expedition as an opportunity to rehash a story that apparently took place in 1901. Something that we can't actually confirm, but it's a good enough story to share regardless. As the Republican tells it, 
Two prospectors in the superstitions stumbled their way into an abandoned mine shaft in September of 1901. They wandered away from the shaft's entrance and found themselves surrounded by gold. More prospectors found their way in and reported, quote, The men in possession of the rich mine were nearly crazed with excitement. Their clothes were torn to shreds and their arms and legs bleeding, their eyes sunken from the loss of sleep and lack of nourishment. The original prospectors were happy to share their bounty, or what they thought was a bounty. A week into the mining endeavor, the Republican wrote that it turned out that everyone involved, by that point some 500 people, had been fooled by the oldest trick in the rock and minerals book. These weren't real gold deposits, they were pyrite, fool's gold, a well-known, well-documented dupe for the real thing by that time. A few decades later, in December of 1931, the Arizona Republic reported that a human skull with two bullet holes had been found by passersby in the superstitions. By April of 1932, the Reno Gazette Journal reported that that skull and the body located three-quarters of a mile away belonged to Adolph Ruth, a pensioner who disappeared while looking for, you guessed it, the lost Dutchman. In October 1933, the Waterbury Democrat reported that J.A. Tex Bradford had gone Dutchman hunting nine months previously. He hadn't been heard from since, and the Democrat posited that he'd become another victim of the lost Dutchman, the tenth victim to be exact, though we're not sure where that number came from. In June of 1947, retired photographer James Cravey set out to look for the lost Dutchman. And according to the Arizona Republic, two Army veterans were visiting Arizona and hiking in the superstitions in February of 1948, when they found what turned out to be James Cravey's skeleton. His skull was never located. In April of 1964, two Californians had gone looking for the Dutchman, and per the Arizona Republic, the apparently reasonable men got into a sudden, petty dispute and one shot the other dead in the middle of the desert. By December of 1970, the Orlando Evening Star reported that the lost Dutchman's death toll had risen to more than 30, including one most recently in 1965. Again, we cannot verify that number, but it seems reasonable given the pace of the stories. And from there, the next most notable deaths in connection with the Dutchman appear to be the ones you already know about. Jesse Capon, Curtis Murworth, R. Jean Charles, and Malcolm Meeks. And strangers, if you wanted to be here for another half hour, we'd be happy to go through every single time someone announced to the press that they'd found the lost Dutchman, only to provide no proof and quickly fade back into obscurity. Believe us when we say, it's a lot. Besides, we have other stuff to do. Important podcaster activities. It's difficult to imagine, having heard all of this, that there isn't some truth to the story of the mine. There must have been enough flickers of truth to keep the proverbial lantern alight for over a century. Maybe people were striking it rich nearby, or at least finding enough gold that word traveled. 
if Jacob Waltz was real, and we have every reason to think he was, there surely must have been something that he worked hard to protect. Well, maybe. Except for one strange thing. It's really hard to make a case for the lost Dutchman existing in the Superstition Mountains, and not just because no one can find it. See, those mountains are volcanic in origin, and gold shouldn't form there. Now, we are not geologists, but we do love devoting too much time to trivial subjects that matter only to us and to our audience. Thus, we share the following. According to the American Museum of Natural History, gold can form in a number of conditions. The flakes and tiny nuggets a gold panner might have found in river silt are from deeper in the earth and were slowly worn away by running water. Bigger deposits that might be mined tend to form near active volcanoes or hot springs, though they can also be created deep below the Earth's crust anytime mountains are forming. A 1997 academic paper archived by the Apache Junction Public Library mentions this latter method of creating gold. But it's because most of what's created during that very, very long process is quartz, which in turn can have little bits of gold embedded in it. Again, we must note that we are really not geologists. But our takeaway is this. The superstitions were only ever mined successfully for quartz and copper. Gold exists there, but in relatively small quantities, because it's not really possible for a mother lode to form there. So why were so many people willing to die for the possibility that it could be there over decades of repeated and failed attempts? It's an unanswerable question, and it's a sobering one in the context of the many lives lost. We suppose you could look at this in one of two ways. It either makes humankind look very terrifyingly silly, or it makes us look like eternal optimists. Possibly both, depending on your point of view. If the stories say that there's gold and then there are hills, who are we, as lovers of the unexplained, to deem that impossible? We can't prove a negative after all, so we can't say with certainty that the lost Dutchman mine doesn't exist. And unless, or until, someone discovers it, everyone else will fail trying. So maybe that's reason enough to keep looking. Is it unlikely? Sure, as far as science is concerned. But there are enough little pieces, nuggets if you will, of truth in these stories to warrant curiosity, at least. And if curiosity isn't what drives treasure hunters at the end of the day, we don't know what does. We hope you'll join us next time for another real-life story from the fine print of America's local papers. From the lives of regular people, just like you and me, except for one strange thing. Oh, and strangers. One Strange Thing is an independently produced podcast. To support the show and to hear more of the entirely true and enticingly peculiar, join us over on Patreon. 
There you'll get ad-free early releases of our regular episodes, full-length bonus episodes, blogs, fun giveaways, the occasional live stream, all for $5 a month. We hope you'll check it out. There's a link in our show notes.